I was just so puzzled by like how much similarities I was seeing between what's what's being said about you know gay people in 1800s, you know, and in the 1980s, and then now, right? It's the same thing. And for me, I'm just thinking, well, at least if you're going to make an argument over and over again, you can sort of change the language, right? You know, you would argue, or you one would think that that would, that would be the most you know tactical, or that's the most basic thing about propaganda. But oftentimes, it's just the same thing over and over again. Sometimes they don't even bother changing the terminology, right? Welcome to Deep Dive with me, Sean C. Fetting. The horror show that is the Republican Party's attack on the queer community, particularly the trans community in the United States, is not just limited to our country. Anti-queer sentiment is taking hold in many countries and regions across the globe. So in this respect, the United States is not unique. What is unique, however, is the United States' singular ability to export and influence policy in other countries, given our role on the world stage. So today I'm talking to Caleb Okereke, Managing Editor of Minority Africa, a news organization dedicated to telling the stories of minority communities in Africa. Caleb is also a prolific researcher and journalist. His work has appeared in such places as Foreign Policy Magazine, CNN, The Guardian, Christian Science Monitor, Vice, and Al Jazeera. We talk about his work with Minority Africa and the evolving landscape of queer rights in Africa, how the United States has influenced the recent push for anti-queer legislation, and how journalism has a natural nexus with advocacy. If you like this episode or any episode, please feel free to give it a like on your favorite podcast platform and or subscribe to the podcast on YouTube. And as always, if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, please email me at deepdivewithshawn at gmail.com. Let's do a deep dive. Hey, Lib, okay, Rikay. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm very well, Sean. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So I want to start by acknowledging something. You're an incredibly prolific person. So you're the managing editor of Minority Africa. You're writing and publishing articles regularly. You're being interviewed quite often. And you're also in school pursuing your master's, correct? Yes. I'm always fascinated by people like you. And it's not the busy part or the prolific part, because I get how people can do a lot of different things in short periods of time. I think it's more interesting to me that, you know, in this world with so much distraction and so many like shiny things that are designed to really, I don't know, lull us into some kind of complacency you know, like our phones, iPads, all of the shit on streaming services, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I think it's really hard not to get like drawn into that. So I'm really, truly fascinated with people like you that somehow managed to moderate that influence in your life and and instead focus on producing things. So that's really cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I would just say that I don't think I'm moderating the influence very well. I thought you might say that. And then that is more fascinating to me because I'm like, how do you still... Like, how do you still engage in, like, the craziness of the world and still find time, you know, to to do something productive? Yeah. You're a better man than I. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's just jump right in and let's start with, you know, the focus of this season of Deep Dive is on queer rights. And you've done, you've written some some stuff in this area. And I want to get there, but I think I want to start with, if you don't mind, Minority Africa. So while, like I said, we're going to spend some significant portion of our conversation talking about queer rights. Minority Africa focuses on minority groups of all kinds. So I'm wondering if you could tell me about Minority Africa. So what it is that you do and why you do it. Of course. So Minority Africa is a publication, an online publication fundamentally, that essentially tells minority stories across Africa. And we try to do this through a solutions journalism lens. And what that means is that we try to cover minority groups mostly, if not all the time, from, from the perspective of how they are responding to problems. We think that that's crucial because a lot of times minority groups get covered, you know, solely in the frame, the angle and the lens of violence. And we think that there's something about, there's something that solutions journalism allows us to do in terms of recognizing people's agency. And I think, you know, I, I always say that when you're a part of any minority group, the very first thing that gets taken away from you sometimes is your agency, right? Your ability to act or respond. 
and then they take everything else. But they take your agency quite early on. And for us, we want to use storytelling as a way to, you know, reestablish that agency to ensure the sources and the people's stories we tell, you know, feel like, you know, the agency has been respected. And also to ensure that the rest of the world actually sees that marginalized groups actually don't passively experience problems. Um, we also try to have a by minorities approach. Um, and so we we try to, as much as possible, have as many minority groups as possible, writing about themselves, um, covering themselves. We have very, like, you know, stringent guidelines on how we tell people how to cover stories and, and things like that. But we also do have, um, besides the publication, which was the first thing that, that started, um, we also have two other aspects of it. So we have a fellowship program, which, again, for us was conceptualized we nobody wanted to fund the kind of newsroom we envision which one day we'll still have you know which has as many people from as many minority groups as possible you know all the time that's that's an incredibly expensive venture and so the fellowship was one way for us to bring as many voices into the room as possible um, or bring more voices into the room as possible so we had our first cohort and we're just about to begin our second cohort we had our first cohort last year our second cohort was this year but the the First cohort was, you know, we had people who were living with disability, we had a refugee, we had different minority groups just basically being represented from different countries on the continent. And that, that allowed us to kind of grow our reach, but also our thematic um, coverage and what geographic reach, but also thematic coverage. And the final thing we have is called Advance. Um, and so Advance is a news agency project, which is being led by my co-founder, Shamir Ramdin, who's doing a great job of just um putting things together and we're we're it's we won the google news we're one of the winners of the google news initiative in innovation challenge for the middle east and africa so what we got funding to build this news agency which we we're already doing so what happened was people were often you know coming to us for content and we would as our stories publish under a creative commons license we would give people these stories to republish which was great because we want to kind of amplify the work that we're doing but that was a very, but it was a very mechanical or sorry manual process that involved us uploading stories on Google Drive, um, people downloading this draft, downloading images, um, just to republish stories. And so with advance, we've kind of automated that process, uh, so we can one get more people on board and sort of have more people who are amplifying our content, but also two so we can have better metrics about who's sharing our content, where they're sharing it, how well it's doing, and 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 things like that. But advance beyond that also includes we're trying to do more trainings for organizations now and like newsrooms that kind of want to improve their minority coverage and we're also working on some special projects with some newsrooms the co the concept of advance is you know how do we ad advance minority stories beyond our publication and that looks like so many different things it looks like the news agency but it also looks like the trainings that we're doing the special projects and special reporting projects and even more recently, we're we're currently working on an online course as well. That that's just one of my you know fun new things to one of my exciting things that I'm doing right now that I feel very happy about. You know, you mentioned building out your stats and 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 tracking like your readership, and that actually does tap into a question that I have because I was wondering. I mean, let me just say for for anybody that is listening to this, and this is your first time hearing about Minority Africa, it's absolutely worth checking out this website because. Often you can imagine that organizations that are close to the ground and are really built up for out of communities don't necessarily carry the same polish that, you know, organizations that are maybe corporate funded do. But Minority Africa presents itself, that website presents itself so polished and so well. I think it's really stunning and it makes me wonder, you know, you talked a little bit about some of your programming, but it does make me wonder what you're like readership is what the scope of that is. Do you have a handle on that? We do. Um, and thank you. I, I actually, I, I, I like the word polished. So we only actually hired somebody to sort of do our marketing. And by marketing, we just mean like digital marketing, like social media, probably eight months ago now. So previously we're just on vibes and mm. it wasn't like we're not concerned about you know, growing, but I think from the very onset, our focus has been because when we kind of, when we kind of look at what we say our value proposition is, we want to be we want to serve minorities first, right? And so it was never really about how many people can 
read our stories, but how many people can meaningfully engage with the content is the kind of approach that we have. And it's and that makes it a very, like you've said, like a very, you know, bottom up approach. Um, so we could easily, for instance, you know, do a three-month campaign and like reach a million people, but we really want to reach people who are really interested in the content rather than just reaching people just so we can say that we're reaching people. Um, and I think there's a concept that I often share with, with our newsroom, often this, um, what Toni Morrison talked about when she was saying, um, she sort of claimed where she was standing as central and then let the rest of the world move over to where she was in, a, in like an interview. When talking about the concept of, of, of mainstream and just the semester, actually, I was researching, you know, how just sort of like what the characterizations of alternative media say about the criticisms of mainstream media. And it's something that I've seen happen in my newsroom, which is why I kind of wanted to research it in other alternative media platforms. But all of that to say that we think of impact and sort of metrics in a much different way. But of course, we do still have the numbers. So I'd say averagely every month or every quarter, because we mostly calculate quarterly. So we probably have around maybe 20,000 people on the website every quarter. And then I think our, our greatest reach is from social media. Mm. And on social media, you know, we have impressions that probably go up to 100,000 or 200,000 or 250, sometimes 500,000, depending on the on the particular quarter or on like what, what's happening then. Yeah, right now we probably have a community following of like around 10,000 across our social media platforms or slightly more, which is so interesting because like, you know, it's it's just all been mostly organic. And that's and that's kind of like been the goal for us to be able to reach people who we really really think, you know, need our content. Mm-hmm. You mentioned impact. Measuring, you know, eyeballs on your content is very different process than measuring the impact that you know the storytelling or the way that you tell stories has. And I'm wondering. In as much as you're able to answer this question, like how do you, how does Minority Africa measure that impact, or how do you determine depth of impact? That's a great question. So, and I, I think you actually answer it when you ask it, because you've sort of talked about what, what I think many people need to realize. Because people sometimes ask us for impact, impact, and they confuse impact with eyeballs and metrics, mm-hmm. and those are two distinct things, right? Right. But also. I, I think, you know, the, the media ecosystem, we've been socialized to think of impact in that way. And that's just how it is. Which And it's a thing that has sipped in from like just the advent of the internet and things like that. But for us, I always say that, you know, the, the most important impact that we make is the one that we make, you know, for ourselves and for the communities that people in our newsroom belong to, for the communities that we serve. Whatever it is, you know, even if nobody ever laid an eye on a single minority after story again, I would still think it was impactful. That's how crazy it is. Mm-hmm. And that's because I, I consider it as a very relevant, um, not just present project, but a relevant archival project. And I'm I'm so glad that we're able to actually be here. Like it's a privilege for us to actually document the stories that we're documenting. And for me, that's the greatest impact, right? The the fact that a person has a story. They're able to put it on the website and it will be there forever. That's just very important to me, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many stories that we've told that would never actually have been on the internet. And if they were, they might not have, uh, they have existed. Like We spent you know months working on a single story um, to kind of make it what we want it to be, right? And I think just being able to sort of work with a writer, a contributor, a person who has a story to tell and, you know, work with them to sort of tell the story and give it a platform is the most impactful thing. Um, and that's how that's generally how we measure impact. We get so excited by like, you know, we had our editorial meeting today, and like not not like we've never in our newsroom talked about not for one single day ever said this story is a great story because it will go viral. Mm-hmm. Never, not not a single day. It doesn't even cross anyone's mind. No one thinks that way. And I'm actually glad because I've heard people, you know, elsewhere and in other spaces, it's a thing people say. You know, it's going to be great because it's, it's going to be it's, it has a potential to be viral or or, or trend. And sometimes we've we've gone viral. We just didn't intend to. And that's mm-hmm. what I mean when I say that we just sort of stay where we are and then let the rest of the world move over to where we are. And the most impactful thing for us is being able to see a great story or see a story that, that doesn't seem so great at first or see a great idea and then work with somebody to actually tell that story. 
is it fair if I were to characterize the, the the work of Minority Africa as being one part journalism, you know, slash storytelling, and then one part advocacy? Honestly, that's a great question. Um, and yes, it is fair because advocacy is, is is one of the things that we put in in our you know value proposition or sort of like as as one of the tenets that we believe in. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't think about and I think sometimes when I say that people think that I mean the journalism is doing the advocating right but it's it, it really is that you know the people behind the journalism have an have an advocacy focus and whether or not we like it it's going to show shine through in the story right in, in how we choose to frame a story and how mm. we just tell a story and you know if people don't like it they can just go elsewhere where there's no advocacy but i think there's there's a lot to be said about how we want to police what media can do a lot of times it's the same attitude people have for like tiktok journalism now you know when i was in italy recently at the festival you know there were a lot of panels around tiktok journalism and a lot of journalists were saying how you know newsrooms don't take them seriously till now um and i and i I just thought well that's also how they feel about anything that feels new um or contrary you know the ecosystem is designed to resist disruption and yet disruption is what it needs so i i think that's a that's a fair way of saying it. But mm-hmm. I also think that we've also been thinking, you know, I, I think sometimes it can feel like little, you know, because we're directly advocating. Sometimes it can feel like little, but there's ways in which we're now actively thinking about how do we, you know, we've, how do we take action even more than just telling the stories that, that we do. Um, and we've taken action, you know, like in the background, you know, things like that, but like how do we, either inspire people to take action from the stories or actually lead these, uh, these efforts ourselves. Because sometimes you start to feel helpless in the grand scheme of things. And yet we constantly have to remind ourselves that, you know, our job is just is the journalism part of it. And 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 there's a great, there's something that storytelling can do for advocacy beyond just what, like beyond what, what the, t- what the typical expectations of advocacy might be. Mm-hmm. I think you might've picked up on why I asked the question, but, you know, to put it a little more plainly, I think I am interested in what straight journalism looks like versus, you know, what's the impact on journalism if you also have an advocacy component to it? I'm wondering if you approach journalism differently than you might if you didn't include or weave advocacy throughout the you know the way that you tell your stories i think so i mean there's so many things that are distinct every single time you sort of think of doing advocacy journalism or any kind of different journalism right and even the way that that i said we we talk about things like metrics and impact are also um you know they also geared more towards advocacy rather than things like virality or meeting up with Advertisers, we're ad-free. It's not the best model, you know, but it's a model that we feel like it's going to work for us. Mm-hmm. I never felt like ads would work well with the kind of content we're doing. It just seemed at odds with it. And so we've just stayed that way. Um, it's also why we use the Creative Commons license because we're not about, I, I want people to use our content in their classrooms that some people have and people have used them in their syllabuses. It's fun. I I, I love it. I want people to use it on in documentaries, wherever they want to use it, you know, use it. That's That's always fun for us. But what I'm trying to say is there's so many things that, that change. You know, it's not always about the journalism doing the advocacy, but sometimes it's about the structure around it, right? Which is different from what you would, you would find in a traditional media organization. So even how we think about, um, I always say that every single time we have our editorial meetings on Tuesday, we had one today. And I always say when people, you know, sit in our meetings and we, we get a pitch, we always consider pitches. We don't even, usually what would happen in a traditional organization is, you know, when you're commissioning a freelancer, you're kind of looking at, oh, so what have they written or where else have they written? We never actually say that. It's not a thing that we're concerned about. We don't care if you've written before. We don't care if you are a doctor, whatever. You know, you, you don't have to have writing experience. Um, you just have to have a story, right? That's, again, a peculiar advocacy angle because that's not what you would find in a traditional organization where, the focus is more on how much experience you have. Whereas we're asking, what is your story? What do you want to share? I'd like to pivot to, you know, what I had mentioned earlier, to a bit of a focus on some of the 
anti-queer, anti-gay, anti-LGBT uh, legislation that's coming out of some African countries. So let me let me ask you this, I, you know, and I think each country, you know, in the world is unique and distinct. So I really want to be careful about painting with too broad a brush here. So if in, at any point, if you feel like any of my questions are entirely too overgeneralized, please feel free to say that. Mm-hmm. But is it fair to say that Africa is experiencing, you know, I don't know how else to say this, like a bit of a renaissance lately as it relates to anti-queer legislation? I think so. And I think, you know, the the reason is in the experience, right? It, it's like a, like we saw with Tanzania who just came out and said, oh, since our neighbors are debating, since Kenya and Uganda are debating an anti-gay, let's also have one. So there's a bit of formal to it as well, like a fear of missing out, and I think that's a that's what's happening. And I and I also think it's it's not unconnected with the, with, with conversations that that are happening in the US as well, with like you know anti-trans rights and the, actually the globe, right? Just sort of like transgender panic, mm-hmm. which you know then has the corresponding effect of emboldening, you know, because it, it it never really stops with one person, right? Uh, or one group or one you know minority group so i think that africa and like you've said it, it's a it's a continent with you know many countries and there's but there's ways in which you know the conversations that are happening in x country influence x country if nothing but in at least in a like in a purely discourse sense so uganda started talking about an anti-gay bill kenya's kenyan mothers talked about one you know, it's it's just uh, it's and it's the same thing that happened in 2014 when the president of Nigeria just said, "Oh, let's pass the same-sex marriage prohibition act," because the world was debating it. I I would I would like to say that it's a seasonal renaissance, but at this point, I don't even know anymore. You know, um, there's a chance that it, it it might just be like the panic might be sustained for longer. Hmm. What makes you think that? What, what what makes me think that is that it's actually mostly America, right? And I and I and I say this um, just with the from the perspective of the, of the fact that you know a lot of African countries, a lot of countries around the world look to America, whether or not America wants to be looked to, right? And I think the U.S. also like designs its place as a model for so many things, you know. And sometimes when you see you know, this model or this blueprint doing certain things, you also want to do it. Um, and I don't see the panic ending anytime soon in the US, mm-hmm. for sure. I know it's going to carry on in, into the next elections. And so I feel like the momentum in in that will be able to sustain the panic elsewhere, right? Maybe not at the same level. Um, maybe it could, be an, it could be an increased level, it could be at a decreased level, it's hard to say. But I, I, I think that if the if the whole world just kept quiet and it was just Uganda debating an anti-gay bill, hypothetically in this like dreamland, the whole world is quiet and it's just Uganda. Um, I think Uganda would would eventually be quiet, but I think now what is really sustaining for this long is again the fact that it for homophobes and for the institution of homophobia it tallies with what is happening elsewhere, and that can serve as some kind of validation. And so as long as you know, these debates continue to happen elsewhere as, as long as they continue to permeate on, on social media. I mean, we're going to publish a piece um, next week, I think, on like how TikTok kind of like, sort of like had content that helped spread the panic in Uganda. Um, and just activists who are essentially saying there's this like TikTok algorithm of gay hate that they felt like was, especially in, in non-English languages, because a lot of these were in the local language of Uganda. And a lot of these anti-gay videos took so long to be taken down if they were taken down at all of the platform. And I don't have TikTok, but people who do, you know, wrote an article for us like about that. All of this to say that, you know, there's there's something there that that I think that so long as what is happening in the rest of the world continues to happen, there's going to be sustained panic across Africa as well. So I've been thinking about this lately as well with, you know, this bleed over effect that what happens in the United States, for better or worse, has impacts on other countries and their policies, right? And so we've seen this kind of rise of particularly anti-trans legislation, but anti-queer legislation generally in a handful of states, quite a few states 
primarily red states in the United States. Um, but but to the outsider, you know, so folks outside of the United States, it's happening in the United States. Whereas to the folks living inside the United States, it's you know, it's Florida and it's Texas and it's Tennessee, right? It's not the United States. Sure. But to other folks, right? It's this is stuff that's happening in the United States, and and as you said, it influences policy in other countries. And we're specifically talking about, you know, Africa. So I've been thinking about the nuance to this. And I and one thing that's particularly interesting to me is that in the United States, public opinion related to queer rights, and this is not specific to trans rights, so this might be a little different, but related to queer rights generally is actually pretty high at the national level, right? There's quite a bit of public support for the queer community in the United States. And what that suggests is that even though we might see these flares, there is a very strong potential that that train can be turned around, right? That we could roll back this legislation in the next handful of years. I mean, that's not a foregone conclusion. It could get very bad, right? But then I think about places like, you know, again, we're talking about African countries that are pursuing anti-queer legislation, but they're doing it in a completely different environment, right? Where support for the queer community is much lower. And that seems more concerning to me because there's less, I think, of a public resistance to it, which gives it a feel of maybe more peril for the queer community and more longevity. Like it, like once these laws have passed, like most recently, I think, you, you know, you had mentioned Tanzania, but also Uganda, that the ability for this legislation to be rolled back is minuscule. Yes, I think, you know, and you see the, the, the very interesting thing about Africa is that what I really do think, you know, is the true danger is oftentimes the the panic, not even the legislation. Um, and of course, the legislation is an offshoot of the panic, right? The panic will still be there. So for instance, in Nigeria, we have a same-sex marriage Pro- prohibition act, but there hasn't been a gay panic as much as there has been in, in Uganda in, in like in the last few years. You know, and it's not to say th- things are far from perfect. You know, the BBC just had a do- documentary yesterday about um being ketoed, which is a term that Nigerians used to mean when queer people are kind of like, you know, blackmailed off of grinder and things. So that still happens. And I, I covered that in 2017 or 2018. And I spoke to a few people who told me horrible experiences, including one of one of my friends who was, you know, stripped naked, things like that, beaten when he went on a date with a guy on grinder. So and they kind of you use the law, you know, the law embodies them essentially, which is the point I'm, I'm trying to make. But the I think the distinction is the panic is not present, right? So in the US, I think that there is legislation and there's a corresponding amount of panic, even though it's not it's, it's definitely not national. But as I mentioned, in these places, um, every single day that I open like you know Twitter, I'm, I'm seeing someone saying, "Oh, this trans girl shouldn't run in school, in high school." Mm. And it's it's not you know it's it's so interesting to me because it's 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 so similar to what they tried to do with gay people before, and I wish people would realize. And I think what even scares me the most is what you're saying that it's it's not it's not impossible that things can actually go back. You know, it's not impossible that we, we can go back ten years or twenty years in legislation. It's it's definitely feasible at this point. Someone just needs to find the right talking point, right or the quote unquote right talking point. So I I think. Whether or not, you know, what what is so precarious about like Uganda or Kenya is that oftentimes the legislation is going hand in hand with a very widespread public panic, mm-hmm. which uses the legislation as a justification or it, you know, legitimizes the violence that they would have made it out anyway. It just provides a framework for them to say, oh yeah, it's it's the law now. Um, but it will still happen with or without the legislation. So one of the things that actually brought you to my attention was an article that you wrote in Foreign Policy called How U.S. Evangelicals Helped Homophobia Flourish in Africa. And in that article, you make an argument that, you know, I think I've been thinking about on a larger scale um, lately. And some of this we just talked about, you know, like how the United States seems to be exporting some of its worst qualities, like embracing authoritarianism and strongmen, bullying, hypocrisy humanitarian and human rights abuses, et cetera. And then, you know, this thing that you write about in your article, which is an increasing homophobia and anti-LGBT agenda. 
And so you argue in this in this piece that the evangelical movement hit some pretty significant roadblocks in the United States, and that when they did, they turned their attention to Africa. And I think you know we could argue maybe Southeast Asia and Latin America as well, and poured a lot of resources into turning society and governments against queer people on the continent. And that you know if that's true, then you know the the fruits of their labor might be bearing out right now with what we're seeing in some of the countries that we've mentioned. But I'm wondering if you'd be open to telling me a little bit more about this and what the thinking is here. Of course. So I think that, you know, I, I'm not, I'm in my early, you know, I'm almost mid twenties, but you know, I, I was so interested when I started. <laughs> almost mid twenties. <laughs> yeah. But some of the things that I write about, um, I wasn't there when they happened, you know? And so for me, there's a, there's a way in which I guess not being there or like not experiencing them, like allowed me, um, or being quite, quite very young when they happened, like allowed me look at them. I would, I dare say even like objectively. So when I kind of like went back, I was just so puzzled by like how much similarities I was seeing between what's, what's being said about, you know, gay people in 1800s, you know, and in the 1980s and then now, right. It's the same thing. And for me, I'm just thinking, well, at least if you're going to make an argument over and over again, you can sort of change the language, right. You know, you would argue or you one would think that that would, that would be the most you know tactical or that's the most basic thing about propaganda. But oftentimes it's just the same thing over and over again. Sometimes I don't even bother changing the terminology, right? And so so what really struck me was how similar the ex-gay movement in the US, you know, is to the ex-gay movement everywhere else. And so that made me kind of like go further and further and say, oh, it actually just didn't start now. It started... You know, it started a long time ago. And like what's being said about trans people now is what was said about gay people before. And what is being said about gay people in Africa now is what was said about gay people in the US in the 1980s and 70s and 60s and 50s, right? And, you know, then the parallels start to get clearer. And there's also, you know, beyond my language or sort of like rhetoric focus, you know, there's also actual investigations that have shown, you know, that, you know, certain US groups have, Certainly, U.S. evangelical groups have, such as like Family Watch International, for example, have been you know pouring money into Africa to fund basically backward um, reproductive and sexual health policies um, and movements. And these are organizations that you know even recently met with the president of Uganda um, at a family break, national prayer breakfast or something like that. I don't know what it was called, or family conference, something, something, but. I guess my my point is they've they've also been you know evangelicals who traveled across Africa um, at the time, verbalizing this you know harmful language. You know they held these events, they because you know this is not the first time you, Uganda is passing a bill like this, right? And the 2013 bill was a direct consequence, I think, of all of those events that were held of. It was it was essentially crazy level of panic. You know, there was a newspaper article that published the names of a hundred or was it two hundred homosexuals in, in mm-hmm. and, uh, and then put their faces, their home addresses, and even did like a series out of it, right? And the editor also justified, you know, what 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 he did. And I actually learned that he he apologized a few years later, which which is so interesting because like the apology is not popular. He just apologized to a group of Anyway, that, that's just a side side note. But I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is, in the early 2010s and pre 2010, you know, these evangelicals traveled across Africa. They went to Uganda. They went to I believe Zambia, um, sort of spreading this this kind of rhetoric, right? And it was rooted in a Christianity, you know, evangelical Christianity. It's it's against the Bible, and not only that, but they also enlisted with people that I describe as this prodigal son characters which were similar to what I had seen in the U.S. with groups like Exodus International, um, who would pick certain people who would then sort of bolster the argument that you can stop being gay, right? And being gay can be cured. And it's, you know, nurture or whatever the argument is versus nature or whatever. And there was this famous press conference in, in Uganda on homosexual recruitment, which happened, I believe, in 2012 or so. But what was so interesting to me is last year at the peak of the gay panic, so what actually catapulted or what actually started, um, of course, I, I can't say one thing started it, but I think in looking, you know, like in my research and in looking back now, there was one moment in which, you know, things 
where you can pin everything to, right? And it's this August um, 2022 press conference that happens at this hotel. I think it's called Hotel Triangle in Kampala, where they were similar to the 2010 conference was a press conference against homosexual recruitment. And it had the same setup as like more than 10 years ago, right? So they had a, a cleric, a nun, a pastor, just to sort of say, oh, we're all, you know, all, all religions are kind of united like on this front. And they once again had a really strong character, perhaps the most convincing of all time now, who was saying he he was formerly gay and he was made to act gay porn by an organization when he was a child. Mm-hmm. Never mind that he actually was imprisoned, you know, for pedophilia, actually, or allegations of pedophilia. Well, he was a, he was in prison, so I think it was more than an allegation. But what I'm trying to say is there was that very one moment, you know, and so for me looking at it, I, I was just very confused by the ways in which I think that not only have the U.S. evangelicals, you know, traveled with this rhetoric, not only have they funded it, but they have also been able to embolden them to even act on their own now, which is very, which is quite, you know, it's, it, 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 it seemed like when you plant a tree and, a, and it just grows, it seems like it's growing. Do you know of any countries in Africa that are doing you know, well in resisting kind of these overtures from the anti-LGBT evangelical movement? So I, I think what's what's interesting is the is, is the countries that I think are doing well are not necessarily resisting evangelical movement. You know, that's that's the they're just doing their own thing. Mm. But they also aren't like doing well, well, well like well, well, well. And with everything, like as with everything, I I I think there's always, you know, when when people talk about it, they would always mention like places like South Africa, right? But mm-hmm. South Africa had, you know, this horrible spate of or this horrific, you know, spate of LGBT murders um from 2021 or it was it 2020, um, which you know, which still haven't stopped. There's there's still been there's been similar um trans, you know, transgender panic in South Africa as well. And today, for instance, Namibia past a the Supreme Court essentially said that couples who were who are same-sex couples who, who who have a foreign partner and are married outside of Namibia can actually be legally recognized in the country, which is great. So I think there's always, you know, there's this small pockets of progress. But I also do think that it's beyond evangelical Christianity, right? And I was writing specifically in the context of places like Uganda and Kenya and Zambia and Nigeria. But I think even if you take the evangelical religion out of it, they become unified in Christianity, right? So even countries where evangelical Christianity is not as popular still have have these backward laws, right? And still Mm -hmm. have people in this way. And even if you go a step further and take the Christianity out of it, they become united in, in religion or in Abrahamic religion, right? Specifically. And so places like Senegal, you know, which is majority Muslim and which used to be a, you know, gay heaven, quote unquote gay heaven, now have people lining up the streets saying we don't want gay people in our country. And so it's 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 a it's a majority Muslim country, but there's still people do find solidarity in the in the religion itself, you know, rather than always the sect. You know, I, I have to assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that, you know, given the work that you do, that you that you must have some queer friends, maybe even family in some of these countries that we're talking about that are becoming, you know, very quickly almost uninhabitable for queer people. And I guess I'm wondering, how do they cope and how does this impact their daily lives? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, which is the thing that we try to do. People always respond, you know, um, and so people always cope. And that's crazy. Like, even if, if you told people 10 years ago that the world will, like, come face-to-face with a pandemic where everybody has to wear a mask, um, and we, we we might have coped poorly. I would argue that we actually have coped poorly, especially in certain places in the world. But people always cope, and people always kind of, like, respond. So I, I think that for a lot of people who... I know and who I talk to, the attitude now is more of and quite people have always been hidden, but it's 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 more it's more intentional hiding, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean hiding like not going out, but just sort of like more more like people are, are now thinking of safety in ways they weren't thinking about it before. 
Mm-hmm. People are thinking of what they say on the internet in ways they weren't thinking about it before. What they have, what information is is, is out there like about them, and especially, I think sometimes you know when you when we talk about this, people people sometimes assume that everybody has the privilege to open leave and move away from somewhere um, that's inhabitable for them, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. whether it's a village or the community, but many people do not, right? Many people, sometimes their safety is actually tied to them remaining in place mm-hmm. and in spaces where they are already known, uh, which I think was one thing that I, I found out during COVID that there are people who, who like for them, being like being locked down meant one that they were increasingly visible, but also people who had to like move places at at some point would sort of tell you about how just the movement of it, like being being approached from what the space that you know to be safe, um, could have like devastating effects. So there's a really great Christian Science Monitor article about how a few years ago in Uganda, um, maybe it's the same now, but they're talking about how sometimes. The villages, you know, were much more reception of queer people than the, you know, big cities. Just because the villages know these people from when they were born, and they've always seen them. And whereas in the city, you're living close to somebody who doesn't know you and who just sees you as a, as a threat. Mm. But all of this to say that I think there's, there's a bit more thinking that goes into how people present, into what they say, into where they go, into how they move. And there's also a lot of talk about people leaving, right? Mm-hmm various means people are i know people have like signed up for current name of this organization i think it's called rainbow coalition or something that is trying to get people asylum out of uganda so people i know people who have signed up for 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 that um and people are thinking of going just out of uganda and previously you know people would go to kenya um which also had horrible um but there's been horrible stories from coming out from like kakuma but now even just the wider country and the wider ecosystem is just designed to harm queer people. So that's not even an option. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to someone that wants to support queer people in places like Uganda and some of the countries that we've been talking about that are oppressing and criminalizing queer folks and the queer community? And then I guess also how could people support the work that you're doing in minority Africa? Yeah, I've I actually always you know sort of struggle with, with the with recommending support because um, mm-hmm. I think there's there's the usual things people say about support, but I like people usually say, and all of them are true, right? So support in terms of amplifying the work, in terms of uh, amplifying the voices, in terms of giving money to organizations that are working, like those are very incredible means of support. But I think so the the most perhaps the most important form of support that I think needs to happen more of is it's a mind thing, right? It's a, it's a, and humans, the world is sort of designed to keep us distracted, mm-hmm. right? We have our own lives. We have our own um, things that we're doing. You know, I I was just reading the other day about world hunger and I was like, Oh my God, I've always known about world hunger, you know, but there's just so many people still hungry and like the world is just going on normally, you know? So I think that's what, that's how it, that's the design of, of capitalism right but the 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 kind of support that i wish i would see more of is is more engagement you know it's it's not just simply donating and going away it is community right it is you know being in touch with people it is talking to people i think even for minority africa like i i think one thing that really helps us is just the people that we talk to who know what we're doing, who know what the challenges are. It's very, it's, it's, it's never really about, it's not always about at least, you know, just giving giving money or it's it's often just about, oh, there's somebody who is thinking about us or who is concerned about us. I, I wish I would see more concern, you know, not just performative infographic concern, mm-hmm. but actual concern for people. Um, and that is fine to share an Instagram infographic. I, I'm just saying that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you, you You probably can't, you know, personally or one-on-one support the whole community. You can donate to a community, but you can personally support one or two people, right? You can talk to people, just how are they doing? Um, you can be engaged with them. You can sort of know, get informed about it. Yeah, I think 
and just I I really do believe in amplification. I I I think things change the more people hear about things, which is why I, I try to you know share as much as possible about the work that we're doing, about the things that are happening, because I think the more people hear about them, because people sometimes generally just don't know, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes people just generally have no idea, and so the the burden. You know, and the burden often falls on people who are marginalized to amplify their own voices, whereas I think the reverse should be the case. And so it would be nicer if people would help carry the message. For, and that's the same thing for my minority Africa as well. I think the most, the greatest support that we need is the support of the message, right? I, I want people to share our content, just meaningfully engage with it, right? Read it and send us an, like a note or something. I don't know, but I actually want people to really you know, use our, use our stories in other forms, in their research, in whatever they're doing. Uh, I think that the goal of the platform is for us to have a space that the world will move over to, which is why we we, we created like Advance as a project, because we realized that if we're going to have the impact that we want to have, there has to be some some work that is being done in getting the content out of our platform elsewhere. And it'll be it'll be nicer if people that's 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 I think the greatest form of support that we need. Of course, we need money as well. You know, it's it's we're always. I, I was saying somewhere that I feel like I've always been fundraising for like the last few years of my life, just because mm-hmm. money, 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 just because. And there's so many projects that we want to do that that we can't afford to do. Um, there's so many things that we could potentially do right now. There's so many ideas we have that we can't afford to do yet. So of course, we need money. We tried to put a donation thing on our website many, many months ago, but we've actually never used it before. Hmm. So people have just reached out to us personally and then we've sort of given them a bank account number and said, oh, this is how you can send us money, hmm. which has still happened very, very, it's mostly been very, very inf- in, 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 like infrequently. We're mostly grant funded, so we've, we've never really had to like crowdfund, which is great. But if you, you know, if you if you know of a grant that you think we should apply for, we're always we're always doing that. If you want to recommend us for a grant, I think those are ways to kind of, and if you have any, you know, sometimes people also, I think one thing that's helpful is, like I said, people have come to us with just offering skill, a skill that we don't have. You know, so someone, someone is helping us. Um, like I said, we're building an online course, but I'm not, you know, I'm barely teaching one class now. But I, like I, I'm, I'm not a like an expert, like a learning experience designer. Or, uh, but then we had somebody who has really worked on courses before who said, oh, I'll, I'll actually give you time and I'll help you. And he's just like really incredibly leading this project. Um, and mm-hmm. then I'm or consulting for us more like, and I'm then and, and then I'm working with him to help with like the content bit of it. But we need so many skills. So like giving you a skill is also one way that I think people can support not just us, but other people um, as well in these countries. It's just really about meaningful engagement and less informative or less less one time and more sustained. Caleb, final question. What's something interesting you've been reading, watching, listening to, or doing lately? So I recently uh <laughs> I recently watched The Staircase. Oh yeah. Because I had never seen the documentary. So I, I watched the HBO series and I was just like, oh my God. And it still bothers me even to today that I still don't know the actual answer to that. Um, I, and some part of me is 100% convinced <laughs> that she was murdered and the other part is like, but do I really know? And it just, I've never had anything that sort of like, you know, blew my mind as as, as crazy as that. But I also, um, just this week again, because I, I started listening to a podcast that I listened to in 2021, I believe what we've been to, that's called The Missionary. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, actually, um, it's on iHeart Radio and it, it it talks about the Rene Bach case. I don't know if you, you know the story of Rene no. Bach. No, the missionary from the U.S. who went to Uganda and started. Well, Rene Back was a high school a high school graduate. Went on a missionary, went to Uganda, and then started a medical clinic where she, you know, treated um ch- children who I think a hundred and five people are alleged to have died under her care. And I know they've done some like settlements with some parents, so I think it's even more than more beyond like an allegation right but the but the number i think that that was alleged to have died from you know because she was, she was also running a blog where she was writing about um conducting surgeries on people also so that that's what the podcast talks about which i was listening to that podcast which sort of goes deep into 
really that that story and follows it deeply. And I was actually assigning it for my class. So I was assigning it for the class I'm teaching now. Oh, really? For, to what end? Why? Well, I just wanted people to think about, well, because there's, there's supposed to be a, a narrative podcast element of it. Uh, and yeah. It was a great example. But I also just thought it's a really um, good way for people who, because I, I think the US can, or like the American system can sometimes be a bubble, you know, but I want to sort of see what's, what's happening elsewhere. And see the ways in which you know, good intentions can also lead to harm. You know, they don't always lead to good. Um, and I think that's a very relevant conversation for people to have in the context of media writing or just anywhere else, really. So, it's a it's, it's a very interesting podcast. Well, I just found it. I'm going to listen to it. I love a good podcast suggestion. So, yeah, it's it is. I have. My fun podcast and I have my, you know, intellectual podcast. All of them exist side by side with with each other. Caleb, okay, Rake, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, and I'm really impressed with all the work that you do. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you so much too. It was a great time. I appreciate the invite. I've been thinking a lot about the experiment that Republicans are undertaking with American governance. Remember when Republicans started arguing around the midterms last year that the United States is not a democracy, that instead we're a republic? It's made me wonder why they would do that. Why attack American democracy? And the answer, I think, is actually deceptively simple. Republicans don't do well in democracy. You might be forgiven for thinking otherwise, for pointing to the Republican sweep of the presidency, the Senate, and the House in 2016, the fact that Republicans have held the White House the past three of six elections, that Republicans controlled the Senate from 2015 to 2021, and they controlled the House from 2011 to 2019, and then again from 2023. They control most state governments and even have supermajorities in some. So to an untrained eye, they seem to be a strong and vibrant party. But then you have to ask yourself, why attack the very system that supposedly put you there? Why attack democracy? The answer is that democracy didn't put them there. It's the cracks in American democracy that put them there. The structure of our American system conceals how poorly Republicans actually perform in our electorate. Apportionment in the Senate means that each state gets two senators, regardless of their size. So small states, which tend to be more conservative, are way overrepresented in our system. Citizens in small states have way more voting power than do citizens of larger states. And while this is a persistent problem, a snapshot in time can help us understand this phenomenon. According to research by Vox, in 2019, Democrats won 41.5 million more votes than Republicans. And as such, the Senate should have split 56 seats for Democrats and 44 for Republicans. Instead, due to the two senators for each state requirement, the Senate was actually split 50-50. In the House, districting and redistricting has been so gerrymandered that politicians are rarely representing competitive districts. And while both Democrats and Republicans have abused the redistricting process, Republicans are far and away the most notorious culprits, essentially stealing power from Democrats in their states. Wisconsin and North Carolina stand out as states that are roughly 50-50 Republican-Democrat within the electorate, but Republicans have gerrymandered their way into massive lopsided victories and supermajorities in the state houses. In the United States House since 2000, the share of seats that Republicans have had in the House exceeded its national vote share in 11 of 12 elections. The power they wield is vastly greater than the proportion of the vote share they receive. And then, of course, the Electoral College, which elects the president, again, favors smaller states, Republicans. Since 2000 alone, so of the past six presidential elections, Democrats have won the popular vote five of those times, but because of the Electoral College, have only won the presidency three. Think of it another way. Republicans have only won the popular vote for the president once of the last six elections, but took office three times. And then the Supreme Court, had we lived in an actual democracy in which the winner of the most votes wins the office, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett would not be on the court. The bench would be 6-3 liberal instead of 6-3 conservative, which it is today. 
and abortion would still be legal across the country. Taking all of this together, imagine what our public policy in this country would look like if we were an actual democracy, with the winner of the popular vote for the Senate, the House, and the presidency actually winning that associated power. We would be a wildly different country, much more progressive, much more representative of the true character of the United States. And this is why Republicans hate democracy. It's why they're not passive recipients of this inequity in our system. It's why they exploit this system to their benefit. But all signs suggest that this charade won't last forever. Every segment of the electorate, save for white Christian nationalists, which is actually a shrinking demographic, seems to be more moderate and more liberal than the Republican Party. And in a democracy, this spells disaster for them in the next 10 plus years. This poses an existential threat to the Republican Party. Which brings me back to what I think Republicans are doing now, actively trying to do away with democracy because they see what's on the horizon. And one way to grease that wheel is to depoliticize the electorate, remove individual voting rights, demonize the media, dismantle checks and balances, attack the judicial system and the rule of law, reform education to advance conservative indoctrination, take over and control businesses, replace the bureaucracy with loyalists, sow distrust and anger, make enemies out of other Americans so that we fight each other instead of them, and aggressively threaten marginalized communities. Their promise is that you can keep your money, your jobs, your cars, your houses, your families, so long as you conform and keep quiet. Don't challenge their power and their control. These are, incidentally, all hallmarks of authoritarian regimes. So based on the things we're seeing Republicans do in places like Florida and Texas, Missouri, Montana, Tennessee, etc., not just policy that solidifies control of a conservative ideology, and threatens the lives of people that don't conform, but also practices like stifling dissent, arresting peaceful protesters, expelling members of legislatures that disagree with the Republican Party. Based on these things, I think this is what Republicans are aiming to do in the United States, control every aspect of society and terrorize us to defuse any potential threat to their power grab, their overthrow of democracy. And this is why this moment in American history is so incredibly important. The median Republican politician right now is an authoritarian extremist and is anti-democracy. It's not just Trump or McConnell. It's governors like Greg Abbott in Texas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, Ron DeSantis in Florida, and their state legislators that are willing to rubber stamp their incredibly oppressive agendas. And look what they've managed to accomplish in just the past five months. So if given total control of the United States government, I don't think we should be naive enough to think that they will not do the same things we're seeing in Tennessee and Florida and Texas and Montana and Kentucky and Georgia, et cetera, on the national stage. They're betting that we will accept a dystopic authoritarian government and political life if it means some personal safety or security, that we will trade on this, but only if the voter is willing to stay out of governing and politics and keep their mouths shut. You know, following World War II, the world asked why normal Germans, seemingly reasonable and even liberal, good Germans let fascism take hold in the form of Hitler's Nazi party in the early 1930s, which, as we know, culminated in the World War and the death of millions of people. Why did normal, seemingly good Germans let this happen? And I think we're starting to see how that can happen. We're seeing the seeds of it right now. We're living through it in the United States in real time. So yes, it's possible that liberal America will rise up and resist this Republican assault on our democracy, maybe even moderate and mainstream Republicans as well. But I'd like to suggest that it's equally plausible, if not more so, that in the end, we all just acquiesce in return for some personal security, that we let authoritarianism take root in the United States, so long as we can keep our houses and our cars and our money and some promise of personal safety and security. This is playing out right now. And then I can imagine that in 50 or 100 years, people will be asking how average, seemingly good Americans didn't see this coming and how we just let this happen. So now is the time to make a difference, whether it be voting or donating money or talking to people or just becoming informed about this. This is not the moment to turn a blind eye. All right, check back soon for another episode of Deep Dive. 
Chat soon, folks.